mean, we all wear the, our own bias, right? We all wear our worldview. So language like the Enneagram is often the best we can do to sort of clear that lens and see through it more clearly and go, oh, this is what might be true for you. And this is what feels true for me. That to me is the practice of emotional intelligence. Welcome. You're on air with Ella, where we share simple strategies and tips from people who are doing something better than we are. Whether it's wellness or relationships to just living better and with more energy or changing your mindset to accomplish more in your own life and succeeding however you define it. This is where we share the best of what we're learning from the experts and we're learning more every day. Live better. Start now. Let's go. Hey, you're on air with Ella and I'm your host, Ella. I am joined today by Miss Erin Bowdy and we are here to talk about something that Erin people have been asking me for, for many, many moons. And we are talking all things Enneagram today. Erin, welcome (laughs) to the show. Thank you for having me, Ella. I'm super excited. I am so pleased to talk to you. This is going to be a lot of fun. And before we do that though, Erin, can you tell everybody who you are and what you do? Yeah, I'd love to. I'm Erin Bowdy. I am a behaviorist by trade, so I'm super nerdy in how much I love um, what motivates behavior, why we do what we do, and how we can use that to sort of transform our lives. I've been studying and working in the field of behavior change for two decades. Most of my career, I spent chugging along in corporate America, working with leaders and in leadership development, and um, it took motherhood to slow me down. (laughs) I have two small kiddos. One of my kids is neurodiverse, and uh, I had to, at some point along the way with my career, decide if I was going to be a really present parent or if I was going to be this (laughs) striving executive and And her high needs pulled me home and I shifted gears, started a PhD program, started consulting and have built this really flexible life that allow me to be mom number one and still do what I love. So I'm thrilled and honored that I get to talk about all of these things in really fun, exciting ways. Well, I'm glad that your circumstances worked out where they brought you to your purpose. So far be it for me to tell you what your purpose is, but you seem (laughs) to be real good at this. So I'm super excited to have you here and to talk to you about this. There are a thousand people that I could bring on to talk about the Enneagram. And for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, I promise we're going to explain that. But I wanted Erin specifically because not only does she have a degree in human development and she's finishing her PhD in organizational psychology, but as Erin said in her own words, she is really focused on behavior change and using the identity framework of your personality to create that behavior change. And in my words, I use the words habit change a lot, Erin, but we mean the same thing. We do. We absolutely do. And we use lots of tools in leadership development, right? We understand personality frameworks like Myers-Briggs or the DISC assessment or strength finders or all these things. The Enneagram is just one of those kinds of tools And I just happened to fall in love with it when I started learning about it like 13 years ago because it puts this really strong sense of language around identity. And if we don't know the why behind what we do, it is really hard to resource it and change it. So uh, it has been a tool that has helped me fast forward in work that I was already doing. Well, for the people who don't know, or perhaps only know of, you know, a a part of this, could you give us an overview as to what we are talking about when we (laughs) refer to the Enneagram? Yeah, sure. 
So it is a personality model built on archetypes. Um, and within the Enneagram, we're looking at nine really distinct archetypes with 27 total subtypes. So we're looking at the framework of pattern of behavior and how my motivations as a human might align to one of these. So it's a it's truly a personality profiling model like a Myers-Briggs or a DISC assessment, like astrology, like human design, right? We, there's so many ways that we can sort of put language to it. Enneagram is just one particular tool that really sort of harkens to how does my behavior align to a particular set of motivations and what does it look like for me to resource those motivations as I want to sort of heal and grow? And just to get a logistical, practical matter out of the way, for people who don't know what their Enneagram type is, and you talk about how there are nine primary, and then there are actually a total of 27 when you include the subtypes. Is that right? Yep. Okay. Yep. And feel free to correct me when I get the words wrong. No, you're perfect. <laughs> okay. But if somebody does not know yet what their numbers are, so to speak, we will put links in the show notes as to where you can take the test. The one that I took that so many people take is $12. That's not us. Mm -hmm. That's not Aaron's $12. That's not my $12. That's just the one of the most widely um, known and accepted tests that are out there. But also Aaron has a lot of free resources mm -hmm. that can help start you on this journey. So all of that will be linked in the show notes. This might be an episode where you actually want to go to the post for this. So you can uh, look for those. So I just want to get that out of the way for folks who weren't entirely sure what their number, what I keep, I want to say what their number is, but truthfully, it's more than one number. So the totally, yeah. And the okay. one little caveat I'll say to that is the, this is where you get my nerdiness, right? I'm getting a PhD. I very much value empirical evidence. The $12 test that Ella that you're talking about is the only empirically studied test. It means the only one that has been shown over time that it produces reliable and valid results. It shows a 46% accuracy. So our work is it's not to say don't take the test, right? It's a great place to start. But as humans, we have to trust our own knowing of ourselves and fill in the rest of the details that don't always feel clear. So mistyping happens a lot in the Enneagram when we take that as face value or someone else's experience of us, right? They say, oh, you're a three. You seem like a three to me. Just hold it all loosely is all I'm saying and, and trust your own sort of gut around what feels right for you. I'm so glad you said that. And when you take, when you take this test, uh, I got to say that was some of the best $12 I've ever spent because the analysis that you get, it yep. gives you three primary scores, your highest score. And then, and then I received two more. I don't know if that's standard Aaron, but I, yep. at the risk of getting into too much detail, I just want to <laughs> share, it gives you, it, I, I think I got a 26 page report yes. that unfortunately yes. was a hundred percent correct about me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's great. I, I am a part of that 46%. Now, now I, there's a primary number. And then, and then, like I said, I got two more numbers and my primary number is definitely my primary number. Whereas if I took the test again, I bet the third number would probably change for me. Mm -hmm. So I hear what you're saying. Yeah. I'm just telling you guys who are listening that that's a $12 well spent. I bought one for my husband. I'm like, can you please dedicate a half hour to this so that I am a better wife to you? Because I need yeah. to read page six on your report. Yes. It's so powerful. Oh, it's, I, and the thing is, this is so, this is just my personality probably Aaron, but I get so like, 
I'm unique. We're all unique. We're all special. You can't tell me like, you can't type me. And then I read mm-hmm. the report and I'm like, no, okay. You can hundred percent type me. And this is exactly me. And this is everything in a nutshell. <laughs> totally. Totally. And I think one of the resources we're going to link is a typing guide that I have that has that $12 test linked in it. Um, and what I encourage folks to do is explore the instincts where I have a free YouTube video. That's also linked in there so that you can navigate the report and say, what is my potential subtype along with the type that goes with this? And then you just get really into these juicy details. Yeah, and if this sounds like homework, trust me, it is fascinating, (laughs) fascinating. And also I feel like they're spying on me or something. It's like, how do you know I do Oh yeah. (laughs) Okay. When I first took the test, I tested as a two. I thought I was a three. Turns out I'm what you call a social dominant seven. And my social instinct was hiding my sevenness, right? I remember getting getting it right eventually, right? It took some time, getting it right. And then reading pages in a book about a social seven, I was like, get out of my head. Get out of my head. How do you know this about me? <laughs> when it lands, it lands. <laughs> Okay. Sometimes is there a common mistyping of certain types? Mm -hmm. Do do you see patterns there? Yes. A hundred percent of all of that can influence, right? Because the online test is doing the best that it can to categorize behavior, the what of what I do, right? So like a behavior of an eight might be that I like to be in control that I'm direct, that I am clear or fast moving, right? Those are all behaviors. And we're trying to point enough behaviors to a motivation of an eight, which is to to protect my vulnerability, right? Are you like calling me out on purpose? I am, I am, I am. (laughs) Yeah, I'm an eight. (laughs) Yeah, so to to hold that, right? Like that the, the online algorithm does the best job that it can to point those behaviors to a core motivation, but it doesn't always get it right because we learn culturally these other behaviors that may have nothing to do with my Enneagram type. I might be a people pleaser because I grew up, you know, in a house for me, a house full of women. And that's what women do. You know, I might be a perfectionist because, you know, in academia, we learn that 4.0s get scholarships, right? Like that doesn't have to mean that I'm a three or a one. It might just mean that I've learned and be, I've been culturally conditioned for those behaviors, right? So I could test, I could click on those things on a test and it points to a motivation that doesn't belong to me because of conditioning. Okay. So in short and utterly over simply, if your highest score is much higher than the rest of your scores, it's likely to be your basic personality type, but use Aaron's resources that we're giving to you for free to understand this better. And this is not the, the piece of paper doesn't decide who you are. We get to, you're right. You got <laughs> okay. it. You got all it. Right. It's all data. It's all information. And we sort of just get to take it in and consider it and figure out what feels true. Hopefully more people have your experience than mine, right? Where they're like, yep, that's me. That feels clear. I got there really fast. That is a gift. Let's talk about then once we get past the practicalities and once we understand kind of what this is, why does this matter? Mm. Like, how can this be used optimally in our lives day to day, Erin? I love this question. 
In psychology, we think about this as ego development. It's just transformation, growing, evolving, healing, however you want to describe it. We often can look at, imagine if I decided I wanted to walk a 5K or run a race or learn yoga or do anything physically with my body. And I went to the gym and the trainer took me to the back of the room and I watched a PowerPoint presentation or I listened to a podcast. I got some really compelling information. And then they're like, okay, you're good. We'll see you next week and we'll do the same thing. My body is no closer to running or walking or doing yoga, right? But that is often how we approach our personal or professional development. We consume a lot of information. We take in details, but we don't go practice it, right? And our nervous system isn't really equipped to practice because I have to actually practice on another person, right? So then I have to deal with conflict and feedback and hurt feelings and all of the things that my body is sort of raging against to keep me safe. And so we have a tendency in our culture to overconsume and underperform, underdo, underintegrate. And so the Enneagram for me, if you look at if you look at the model, if you ever see the picture of it, I look at it like a map. And I just find where I sit on the map. And then I know what my tools and my resources are to understand myself better. And then it gives me language and understanding to go practice who I want to be in the world versus just what I've been sort of habitually conditioned to do. Thank you very much. And you know that I am obsessed with application. So not just consume, 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 but create, produce, do. Yep. And yep. There, therein lies the difference, right? Between a life well-lived and one that could have been. So I really appreciate the angle that you're coming from. Okay. I'm going to just say the nine types, if you will. Okay. Just to give everybody a framework to proceed through the rest of our conversation. I'm going to say each type. Will you just say like a sentence about each just Mm -hmm. to help us uh, put some context around the name? Okay. Type one, the reformer. I love the word reforming because it denotes constant improvement, right? We often think about the one as a perfectionist. I don't think that's a clear enough word. Reforming means that I understand my security comes from constant improving. Okay. Type two, the helper. Um, I like to call the two, the strategic helper, because I don't help just for the sake of helping. I help to meet my own ego need. So I am a strategic helper, meaning there's an agenda behind my caretaking and that agenda is reciprocity. I need something in return. Type three, the achiever. Okay, so oftentimes the type three is our success driving, you know, CEO wanting to be seen and known for their achievements. I think a clear way to look at that is that type threes learn to get seen, known, and loved by their external outputs. What I do gets me loved, right? What I do keeps me safe. Oftentimes, I get so practiced at doing, I become the best. Type four, the individualist. Mm -hmm. So we look at the four as has the the biggest depth of emotion in the Enneagram, meaning that they hold the spectrum of emotion. They have really high highs and really low lows and often develop a sense of comparison, right? That's why envy becomes a 
a, a word that we used to talk about before is that I use comparison as a way for me to orient how well known or loved I am. And I often get caught in a cycle of comparing myself to others and not feeling good enough. Okay. Type five, the investigator. Yes. I love the, the idea of the five as the sage, um, the sort of quiet avarice of the five that basically says my security comes from me holding all of my knowing, my resources, my knowledge, my skills. And so I, to the world, look really boundaried. I, I look to the world, look maybe introverted, but the reality is, is that I don't know how to share well, because that makes me feel unsafe. So type six, the loyalist. Yes. I like to think about the six as the loyal skeptic. The world might look at them as the glass half empty, right? The skeptic, but really they look at themselves like the realist. I'm just willing to say the things that could happen or could go wrong. And ultimately the six energy or the six strategy just wants to feel certain. I feel secure when things feel certain and I will prepare and ask questions and investigate as a way to create that certainty. Okay, we have a few more. Type seven, the enthusiast. Okay, this is my my type. This is where I fixate. And often we can see the seven orienting towards gluttony. And this isn't gluttony like I need to have everything on, you know, the buffet. It is the inability to limit experiences because sevens learn to control their reality. If I control my reality, I keep myself safe, which means that I don't have the ability to let anybody limit my reality because in that loss of freedom, I feel unsafe. So interesting. And you know, we're all picturing people as you're giving us these explanations. (laughs) Okay. Type eight is the challenger. Yes. I love the idea of the eight being a defender or a protector. They're not the type of person that's challenging for the sake to challenge, right? I'm not I'm not like the six is the contrarian. The six is the one that's going to challenge for the sake of the challenge where the eight is desiring protection. They're desiring oftentimes the eights have such a big energy, such a big force out of this desire to control and protect their vulnerable, tender self. I have to be big to protect me and I will be big to protect you. Finally, type nine, the peacemaker. So nines, I think, get a misrepresented rap. Um, We often think about where we use language like lazy or slothy to describe a nine. And I think that's just inaccurate because the amount of energy that it takes for a nine to disassociate from their own needs and center yours means that there's a ton of energetic presence around ignoring me to make room for you, right? And so the fatigue that comes from those experiences. So nines, I think about them like this very active energy, right? This peacemaking, because I have to ignore me to make room for you. There's activity in that versus just like, oh, I'm just going to sit back and not care about anybody, right? Like, or, or, be laissez-faire, right? The what, what laziness sort of denotes. The nine is more active than that. Well, that's, a, that's actually a great example then to explain the difference to us between motivation and behavior, because that's something that you called out. And I think, that's a, I think this is a great place to explain what the difference is and why this, the Enneagram is useful. Yeah, because if you just look at somebody who sits in the nine seat, right? 
who might come across to you as not taking action. Maybe they don't put their needs forward. Maybe they appear to other people to procrastinate or right all of those sort of the lazy things that we would describe where in the motivation of the nine is I'm so practiced at ignoring my needs, so practiced that I actually don't even know what they are anymore. They're Mm. so hidden in me that when you want me to come forward, you're asking me to traverse the Grand Canyon, right? You're asking me to go so far into a knowing, and then you mirror them with an energy of like an eight or a seven or a three who are very active, go-getting types. And it's like, I want you to come all the way where I am, but yet my motivation is to ignore me to stay safe. And so everything in my body is going to rail against me coming forward because coming forward, my body knows is not normal. (laughs) And so it's, it, it really is this interesting juxtaposition between it's not that they're lazy or they procrastinate. It's that oftentimes I don't even know what starting looks like or feels like. And my stress response is keeping me right where I am. See, just that one example to me points out why this is so useful, because if I could have insight into the Enneagrams for my partner in life, for my children, for the people I work the most closely with, that's going to make a profound difference. Of course, awareness is always going to make a profound difference in your relationships, but this, this helps explain things that you're looking at through your lens and it feels, looks, smells, and tastes completely different for the other person. You got it. I mean, we all wear the, our own bias, right? We all wear our worldview and it's almost impossible for us to filter that, right? We can't ever take our worldview off and see from somebody else. So language like the Enneagram is often the best we can do to sort of clear that lens and see through it more clearly and go, oh, this is what might be true for you. And this is what feels true for me. That to me is the practice of emotional intelligence is to know what belongs to me and know what belongs to you. And then we manage that. This feels a little scary, but I'm going to completely out myself and tell you what my primary, secondary, and third number were. And the reason it feels vulnerable is because once you read the report, like you'll, this is this is like the kit to me. Like this is how to get inside my head because I am what I think has to be, Aaron. And I know you're not allowed to say this the most annoying combination that could possibly (laughs) exist. (laughs) I am very high in type eight, the challenger. I like what you said. You called it the defender, the protector. Then I'm a type like close behind type seven, which is the enthusiast. And then type three is my third number. And I have to say, they're all like Mm kind of in the same range. And that's the achiever. And I'm like, is there a more annoying combination of types for other people to have to experience. What that tells me is that you're really active energy, right? There's energetic movement and we need all kinds of energy. We know that we can see that in team dynamics and relationships and all of those things. So that tells me is that you're a really active energetic force that partnered with a more compliant type or even a more passive type balances you out, but also creates a gap, right? It creates a gap of knowing of this is where I am and this is where they are. And we can feel frustration in the middle of that because we don't often know how to bridge each other's energetic difference. 
Are you, um, are you going to charge me for this? <laughs> hey, this episode is brought to you by me. And I have mentioned in season six that I'm doing testimonials, not advertisements. That means I'm not getting paid to share some of my favorite things with you. It's sort of like the old good, bad and yummy episodes where I'm just sharing things that I love. And then I'm going to share promo codes, discounts, at the least an affiliate link wherever I can get them from the people that I'm recommending and the services that I'm recommending. So today I want to talk about one of my best kept secrets for almost three years now, and that is rent the runway. It's true. I almost never shop anymore because I have brand new outfits every month. So there's actually no need to shop. Also, I don't go to the dry cleaners anymore because rent the runway does that for me. I got started with Rent the Runway when I moved to the Washington DC area and I was working in a corporate office every day and I was not even remotely interested in buying the wardrobe that I needed for that role and I decided to try out Rent the Runway for exactly that reason and of course I'd heard about it but I'd never used it. So that worked really, really well because I was wearing outfits that I would never have purchased and that suited the corporate executive environment really well, brands you would recognize. And just honestly, I'm not spending $900 on a suit, so I'm happy to rent one from Rent the Runway and then have them clean it for me. So I'm super glad I did not invest in that wardrobe because here we are two and a half years later and I'm no longer in an office every day and I don't even hold that role in the same capacity. So I simply don't need that type of wardrobe anymore. I actually paused Rent the Runway during lockdown and then started it back up again recently because I needed a fabulous outfit for a speaking gig and I used one of their promotions to restart it. And then I found myself traveling and having fun social events again. And here we are back to one of their monthly plans. So because this is not an advertisement, but a testimonial, I actually want to share with you what I like about it and what I don't like about it. So here's who benefits from Rent the Runway, in my opinion, and then who does not. If you're working in an office every day and you want to level up your wardrobe or for any reason where you feel that you need to level up your wardrobe, maybe to higher end brands um, or quality or style that you wouldn't normally invest in, then this, as it did for me, could solve that for you. If you have a job that's public, so whether it's local TV or regular speaking gigs, this offers you a variety without having to build some huge wardrobe. I know a lot of TV presenters, news anchors, um, folks who are on TV regularly or filming regularly use Rent the Runway all the time. Vacation, holiday, special event, or a wedding. By the way, if you have size fluctuations, you don't need to buy a new wardrobe if you're up or down a few pounds if you've got Rent the Runway because you can just change your sizes accordingly. So that's a nice flexibility too. Here's what I like about it. I can pause any time. As I said, I did this during lockdown just by opening the app and pressing pause. Then I restarted just as easily. There's no dry cleaning for me. That's a cost savings and a big convenience factor because I just zip everything back up in the bag that they gave it to me in with a prepaid label that they gave me. And then I can actually, they have a service where you can leave it on your front doorstep in some cases, depending on where you live or drop it off at a UPS, for example. But I'm not paying for anything. I'm not standing in line. I'm not dry cleaning. I zip it up, drop the bag. 
Here are the cons. The cons are it's another monthly investment. And so you have to weigh whether it is worth it to you. For me, it is saving me money. So it's actually saving me money on my previously enormous dry cleaning bills and on shopping. I mean, I simply don't shop for clothes anymore. If I'm buying something, I'm buying it from Amazon. Like I'm not proud of that, but that's it's like Amazon or high fashion. (laughs) That's where I am these days. Okay. I do not recommend Rent the Runway if you work from home and don't have any of those other things going on right now that I mentioned. So if you don't have a special event or you're not doing something that's quite public or you're going into an office every day, and really if you're home 85% of the time, then I personally don't think it's worth it. They have loads of athleisure and comfy clothes. I just don't think it's worth the spend personally. Of course, that's entirely up to you. I don't think that's worth the spend if you're not, if you're not going and doing, uh, right now at this season in your life. If you do have a special event coming up, a reunion, a speaking gig, a social event, a party, or a job that requires that you sharpen up your wardrobe a bit, then you can use my code to get 40% off your first month. So you can try it and then you can cancel it or pause it, whatever suits you. But use my code, get 40% off your first month and experiment with it. For me, honestly, it's just really fun to wear something new without ever going shopping, which is not a pastime I enjoy. Okay, Rent the Runway, my code in the show notes. Just scroll below the show art and my code will get you 40% off your first month. You can cancel it or pause anytime. All right, let's get back to Erin. I have a similar, like I'm a, I fixate at type seven. My husband's a type six. Like we're very complimentary, but we also are very different energetically. And so I get frustrated when he gets overwhelmed. He starts to embody that of a nine. He sort of shuts down. He gets really quiet. He doesn't move. When I get overwhelmed, I'm taking action. And so we just move further apart energetically when we're stressed. And it's taken 13 years together to go, okay, how do we slow down or speed up to get more in the middle so that we can manage stress together instead of polarizing each other? Well, I just had a conversation with somebody and I think it'll air after this conversation. So forgive me guys, but I'm dying to share this concept with you. She said, you know, when you're in partnership, we sort of are raised to think that we're looking for our puzzle piece where we fit so nicely together and we complement each other. And frankly, we kind of look the same because we're not, not look the same, but we have the same attributes. And the truth is, the healthiest relationships and partnerships are more like Legos where we're stacking on top of each other and building something unique and special and great. And what you're talking about makes perfect sense to me because I'm sitting here thinking, can you imagine a world where my, my own little world where I married and ate? We, well, first of all, one of us would be in prison now. So that's how that would go. Of course you want to seek a compliment But I love that you're identifying the reality of that. And that is that there's a gap, especially in the stressful moments. And what I found so insightful about this analysis was when you get your, you know, your personality type explanations, when that, when you take the test and then they send that to you. And then again, I just want to say again, Aaron has additional resources and it will all be there for you. But when you just do your little $12 test and you get your resources, they send to you generally eights are using myself as an example. And they, use they tell you the adjectives that generally define you. And then it says eights get into 
conflict by being, and then they list another set of adjectives that define you when you're not at your best. And then they talk about what you look like when you're at your best, but then they get into your hidden side, relationship mm-hmm. issues, um, personality dynamics and variations. Can you talk to us about what it means when we look at healthy levels versus unhealthy levels and why that matters in the Enneagram analysis. No, I think that's really helpful. And I want to piggyback off of what the conversation about, you know, sort of the Lego stacking and can talk about how it transcends into the, the high side, low side of our behavior, because we're often attracted to opposite, right? That whole cliche opposites attract, but in conflict, we get frustrated when people don't think like us, don't problem solve like us. And so we see this in teams, with kids, with spouses, with friends, that we want someone that makes us feel safe and safety and security isn't sameness. It's that sort of complementary Lego stacking, but conflict, problem solving, we want it to be fast and familiar, right? And so that's where the Enneagram or a tool like this can help because it puts language to the gap and we can get to fast and familiar more quickly. That's really important. I really want to underscore what you just said. In application, when you're living your life, when you're facing the nuances, the challenges of everyday life, we want it frictionless, right? We want it to be easy. But the truth is that would make a very boring life, just PS. Mm -hmm. But also what you're saying is this gives us the language to Mm -hmm. address those gaps, to manage the friction. Right. right. Okay. Exactly. Okay. I'm going to put you on the spot here because this part's just really fun. Can we pull out just a couple of the archetypes Mm -hmm. and, and go a little bit deeper on them? Yeah, sure. And this would be a good place for us to sort of hold that spectrum of behavior because ultimately at the end of the day, every archetype gets really good at a behavior so good that they don't use anything else, right? So what do you mean? We, so if we think about, let's use the type one, right? Often called the perfectionist. They're the type of folks that, that look to reform, to constantly improve. So in theory, we really want people in the world that want to make it better, Right. We want the people who are looking at the problems and saying, let's make this better. Let's improve this. Let's tweak this thing. Let's polish it, right? But too much of a good thing is too much. We can learn to improve, 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 improve where we don't understand what the limit of improvement is. We, we don't know how to quit, quote unquote, turning the screw, right? I don't know how to leave it and, and allow it to be enough. So when you look at the one and we think, oh, they're perfectionists, what we really see is that they're conditioned to improve things. And we desperately need people that want to make stuff better. But they also have worked that single muscle so much that they don't know how to let it rest and bring up another thing like the nine might be really good at is letting it go and moving on. (laughs) So we can sort of see the spectrum of behavior for the archetype of one around improvement of I can go too far with it or not far enough. Okay. Okay. And I think that again, really helpful insight because when you are a one, you're the fish in the bowl, you don't know you're wet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's really interesting to read about it in objective third party language and be like, (laughs) oh wait, yeah, that's me. Okay. All right. Is there anything else that you would say about the ones healthy or unhealthy levels before we move on to another archetype? Yeah, so I I really like to rephrase it from healthy to unhealthy because I think we're human. So am I using my gift too much? Is it getting in the way of other things, right? 
am I orchestrating improvement? Let's say I'm on a business team or I, I'm a project manager and I share with other people, right? And I just am constantly critically, you know, being critical and judging and improving. And what about this? And we missed this, that I sort of missed the people, right? I missed the opportunity to say, we're doing a really good job or what's good enough or where do we lay this down, right? And so a one can then get so conditioned in improvement that I don't know how to live in mistakes. I don't know how to live in mess. You know, a lot of my clients who are ones, we practice living with messy things. Like one of my clients, her, her job is to um, put the dishes away wrong or put the dishes away messy or let her kids put the dishes away messy. If I can't be okay with my silverware drawer being a little bit off, you better believe I can't go to work and be okay with something that means a whole lot to me that has my integrity tied to it, that there's a mistake in it. That can feel catastrophic. So we have to practice being okay with messes in the safest context so that I can work the muscles of being okay with the mistakes in contexts that are really important to me. Okay, let's talk about, who do you wanna talk about next? I think the three is another really easy one to see because whether or not you are a three, we're sort of culturally conditioned to the same process. I think the same is true for ones too. Threes and ones as people who identify as that type, but then also society rewards us for being like this, right? We get rewarded with good grades by being perfect in school. And the three is the achiever, so the to speak. The achiever. Yep. Okay. Thank you. So much of corporate culture, much of business culture thrives on success-oriented metrics, right? Do a really good job, you get recognized, you get a promotion, you get a raise, right? Like we sort of reward efforting and achievement. And so the three learns, when you, when you really fixate at three, what they learn is that my goodness, my love, my worth comes from my effort. And I only know that I'm good if you see and acknowledge my effort. So that doesn't mean that I need a ticker tape parade per se, but I definitely need you to see me and acknowledge me. So I can go so far that my goodness, my worth, my humanity lives outside of me. Now all of these people have control of how good I am. And so if they're having a bad day, if they're off and they don't see and reward my effort, I can feel like I am not good enough. And so the work of a three is to learn to take that back inside, break up with that cycle and find ways that we can acknowledge our own worth and have it detached from what I do. Okay, let's try and get maybe two more on the table. Yeah. How about type seven, the enthusiast? Yes, well, this one's easy for me to talk about because it's, it's in my body. <laughs> As I mentioned a little bit before, the seven is concerned with having opportunity experience, right? And so we see it as gluttony because I want the next thing. I want the next thing. I want the next thing. But the reality is that the seven learns in childhood that their happiness, their contentedness, their security comes from their own creation. And so what sevens get really good at is controlling their satisfaction. And they grow to believe that they actually have control over their satisfaction, right? If I just do this thing, if I go to the next thing, if I try this, this next shiny object, I will feel good in the next experience. And so it looks like gluttony. And ultimately what it is, is 
the need to, to be free to make choice so that I can feel safe in that freedom. Restriction, cutting into that starts to make me feel like I'm unsafe. The work of a seven, they'll often tell sevens that they need to sit in their emotions or they need to be content right where they are. Ultimately, what that has meant for me is learning to feel everything, learning to experience the pain or the discomfort of when my, my opportunity or my choice is taken away and know that it's within me to create something different, but it's all here versus all out there. Okay. Finally, for our last example, let's talk about eights and I will try (laughs) not to take it personally. (laughs) Well, eights are some of my favorite types on the Enneagram, eights and sixes. I think because I have such a tender spirit and a tender heart that the folks in the world who are really orienting to protecting other people feel really special to me. And so the eight energy, I think is so misunderstood because on the outward experience, we can see them as really direct and clear and fast moving and this really powerhouse of energy. And ultimately what the eights get really good at is objectification. If I can take all of the emotion out of it, right? If I can take all of the tender parts of me, all of the uh, me that feel too close to the softness and I can just make it more objective, I can stay big and stay safe. But in order for me to objectify me, right, to not, you know, feel all those things, I inadvertently objectify you. And so that's where I can come across too direct because I'm just in it. I'm just, it's black and white. It just is. And I can sort of forget the tender emotional things in other people, even though there's a real rich softness underneath that is motivating my desire to be in control. Is it fair to say that eights might have a tendency toward impatience for the same reason? Sure, sure. I think of eights like a knight in shining armor, right? This really hard armor on the outside, but it's protecting the softest, softest, gushiest, kind, tender heart you'll ever imagine. And if you're lucky enough to get through that armor, you will be loved like it's unknown. I'm going to share, I'm actually going to read a couple of sentences from the report that I got about what eights are like under stress. And the reason I'm going to do this is, is twofold. One is to share the type of, I mean, this is a couple of sentences out of maybe 26 pages. One, (laughs) one is to share the depth of understanding. And another is to shed a little light for the on-air with Ella family, because it's directly relevant to them. So it says, Uh, some of the dynamics and variations around type eight under stress an eight behaves more. I'm not sure if behave is the right word, but shows up more like a five. Mm -hmm. So under stress, what that means is eights usually respond to stress by taking problems and challenges head on. They are bold and assertive in pushing for control and for accomplishing their vision, whatever it might be. But this approach can leave them feeling belaggered and overwhelmed. When stress levels get too high, eights may suddenly switch tactics and go into periods of retreat or even isolation. They pull back from the front lines to assess their situation, to strategize, and to see how they can regain control. They may become quiet, isolated as they explore ways to deal with their problems. 
full stop. Okay. So the reason I share that is because Aaron, I took a long hiatus from the show after basically saying I would never do that again. (laughs) And I have had an extremely difficult time explaining it and I still can't explain it. So I'm, that's not what this is, but just sharing that insight into my personality is that when I don't have a grip on things or on something, I actually tend to retreat so that I can get sorted and then come back out into the world. And so to date, that is the best insight that I can share to with my family here on the air as to kind of what's going on and where I've been. Yeah. <laughs> and isn't that cool that it gives you sort of language to go, oh, that's true for me. I did that, right? Like, and that's often what we need is that extra level of clarity that, you know, the ability to communicate it to other people in a way. And so that's why I fell in love with this tool was because of that magical piece that it gives us, which is the ability to share our truth. Well, Erin, this has been such a great Enneagram 101, (laughs) such a great starter course. Is there anything that we've left unsaid for now about the best use of this tool, you know, at work, in relationships, in partnerships? Is there anything else that that you want to get on the table before we wrap up today? I I think the only thing I would add is self-awareness goes with us everywhere, right? So it doesn't matter what role we're in, what hat we wear, if we learn ourselves really well and we learn to integrate what we are learning into our actions we are sort of unstoppable with where this can have a positive impact Aaron how do you work with people because what you told me is that you're willing to offer a complimentary discovery call I'm a little worried about you you might blow up <laughs> your inbox is about to that. get slammed <laughs> I'm not mad at that tell everybody a little bit more about where to find you and, yes. and what you do So I am happy to offer a 30-minute complimentary call. Ultimately, at the end of the day, you can decide how you use the 30 minutes. So if you want to come asking questions, if you know a little bit about your type, if you want to bring your $12 test and have someone help you figure out what it means, all of that stuff feels completely appropriate. It's your time to do what you need with it. And it's a good opportunity for you to see how I work in real time around helping folks make transformation in their behavior through understanding their identity better, right? So I do that through one-on-one coaching. I do that through group coaching. I do typing consultations where we get really, really clear about all the nuances of your type. The space I'm creating on social media through Instagram and YouTube is meant to be a free and accessible place for us to practice what we're learning about ourselves. I load up my Instagram with tons of content so that you can come and watch and listen and consume and reflect all of these different perspectives so you can figure out A, what feels true to you, and B, how to apply it to your your life in a way that's meaningful for you. So Instagram or checking out my YouTube channel, those are resources for you to think about, like, you know, come into the gym and working out. (laughs) Okay. Well, you are living the Enneagram everywhere that one can be found. I will link to all of that in case nobody wants to spell that. And also, (laughs) of course, to make it super, super easy. So guys, when you're listening to the show and you're looking at the show art, if you scroll up, that's where all of the notes and the links are. And then at onairella.com, Every single show has its own blog post. So all of these resources and more can be found there uh, just to make it super easy for you. Erin, you're amazing. I cannot let you go without asking you one question. And that is, what are you loving right now that you want to share with the audience? Oh, man. Um, 
I live in Michigan and we've had a really gray uh, winter and something that's really, really regulating to me is when the sun shines, going to stand outside and putting my bare feet on the warm ground and we are just getting to the point of that. I really feel like nature and the sun are really grounding and regulating for me and so they help me get back into my body. Uh, I think that's so important in all of the work that we do to stay in our bodies. So that is life-giving for me right now. You heard it here. There's this big life source. It's right outside your front door. (laughs) It's called nature. Called nature. Take your shoes off and stand in some dirt. Erin, thank you so much for coming on air with Ella. (laughs) Thank you. Okay, that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed today's show and got something out of it that you can use. If you did and you want to learn more, find me on Instagram at onairwithella or get the show notes and links at onairella.com. There's no with. It's just onairella.com. Thanks for listening. Thank you for sharing the show. And thanks for inspiring me. You are quite simply awesome.